Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 24th, 2017, and this is episode 1990 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one coming for you today. This is a listener feedback show, so you guys basically wrote this show. The way you participate in doing that is you send me an email with either a question or a comment or an article or a news story or whatever you want me to cover on the show. Tell me, you know, tell me about it in one sentence or less. Hit the return key a couple times and then uh, make your point with greater detail if you need to. I'll also put TSPC in the subject line. Again, you send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line to call it to my attention. And that way I will see it and I will know it's for the show. Again, TSPC in the subject line. So what do we got today? Well, up front I got a, uh, a quick little announcement for you about some MSB, Member Support Brigade updates. And uh, an MSB sale just happened to be going on at the same time. I have a quick bit of listener feedback on automation that kind of really strikes you right between the eyes like a two-by-four when you think about it. Uh, I have a question on how to successfully track your geese for meat from goslings up to slaughter size. I have a question. Basically, I'll, I'll tell you what the actual question is, but the way I read the question is, is there any legitimate use for GMO crops? Can we use genetically modified organisms in any legitimate way? I'll talk about that. Um, getting your compost to actually, well, freaking compost, like to go, to do something, to actually get hot and break down. How do you do that? We'll talk about that. A woman is banished from a town for calling 911. Seriously. Seriously. I, I, I'm ready to freaking frick, frick, blow a gasket right now thinking about this story. When we cover it, I'll probably have a jack rant because, well, somebody needs their ass kicked for this. Not fined, not fired. There are people that are involved in this that need their effing asses kicked. And not like once, like every day for like, I don't know, a month at least. Slapped around with a frozen fish, something large like a steelhead trout or something. I mean, the yeah. where do you hear this? Anyway. And, well, after that, we'll need something to lower the blood pressure. So we'll talk about with one, what one man did with 5,500 acres of damaged land using mostly grass seed. Unbelievable. Uh, we'll have a question on bulkheads versus uniseals and aquaponics. Um, and a concern to watch out with your mailbox, not one you would think about. This is not something you'd be like, oh, that, I, I need to be worried about this. Apparently so, because apparently the post office, and the, the postal service is in the business of extortion. Yes, extortion. You'll hear all about that. And is Congress about to raid your 401k with Jack Wright again? Well, sort of, not exactly, not yet anyway. And boy, oh, Motley, Motley Fool is doing some big-time yellow journalism with their headline, because it's all Trump's fault. Sure it is. Anyway, all of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at knifekits.com. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. 
But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a .com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1990, and uh, that's because the episode's 1990. I have two today from Alex Shrugged and one from Southpaw Ben. I have The State of the Clean Air in America, contributed by Alex Shrugged. I have Pale Blue Dot, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And I have The Secret Service Crackdown on Internet Crime, contributed by Alex Shrugged. All of these are interesting. I'm going to read two because Pale Blue Dot is short, and it's, it, it's about... One of my favorite people that's ever lived. So I'll I'll make time for that one today. Some notable births this year. Emma Watson, who was Hermione in Harry Potter. Kristen Stewart, Bella in Twilight. And Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence, Katniss in the Hunger Games. And the only person before, born in the 1990s to win an Academy Award for acting so far. Anyway, this year in film, Ghost, Home Alone, Total Recall, and Pretty Woman... Edward Scissorhands, Kindergarten Cop, and The Hunt for Red October. Some of those were good. Home Alone is a classic movie in our house. We watch Home Alone, Home Alone 2, and Elf every year around Christmas time in the Spirico house. Um, it, kind of the three and on went downhill, but the first two were pretty damn good and pretty damn funny, and they're still funny even knowing everything that ever was going to happen in them. Um, Next on, this year in TV, Nightline airs Madonna's controversial music video, Justify My Love. Musically, it's not very interesting, says Alex Shrug. Visually, it approaches soft porn and not very interesting, says Alex Shrug. It's pretty racy. I think that today, things just like it happen all the time and nobody flips their lid over it. But 1990, even though it wasn't that long ago, in some ways it was a long time ago. Law and Order begins this year on TV. Beverly Hills 90210 was rated as the best show of all time by AOL TV, which is probably why AOL TV no longer exists, says Alex Shrugged. And in comedy, we have Northern Exposure, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, starring a young Will Smith. I liked The Fresh Prince. I really did. Uh, I didn't watch it in 1990. I didn't watch anything much in 1990, because uh, it was graduate high school and then go to the Army, and I didn't really watch anything much on TV until about 93 when I got out. Um, so I don't, I, I, this was some of those things that I watched in reruns more and I kind of liked it. Uh, this year in music, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, Vogue by Madonna, You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer, who seems to be making a, a comeback, uh, in commercials for some kind of, uh, thing that sticks to the wall. And It Must Have Been Love by Roxette, the theme song from the movie Pretty Woman. While I wasn't a huge fan of Pretty Woman, I did kind of like Roxette, believe it or not. This year in video games, let the Nintendo World Championships begin. It begins in Dallas, Texas and goes on 29-city tour of the USA. Final Fantasy is released. This begins the long series of role-playing games. And Super Mario World is released, introducing the Yoshi character. In other nudes, Iraq invades Kuwait. This will lead to the Gulf War early next year. While it's not in the history segment, I can tell you the day. August 2nd, 1990. Why? I turned 18 and was already in the United States Army. So it was quite uh, impactful to me because it happened on my birthday, yes. Boris Yeltsin becomes president of the new Russian Federation. In the midst of a gentle transition to a market economy, the old guard tries to reign control of a coup. Uh, the whole Soviet Union came crashing down when the army refused to go along with the coup. The destruction of the Berlin Wall begins. Officially, that is, Germany, German reunification is near. 
Natural disasters this year. 88 confirmed tornado sweep through Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio, killing 12. 37 tornadoes hit Indiana alone. An F5 tornado hits Pittsfield, Illinois, killing 29 people. That is the Chicago metropolitan area. A 7.4 magnitude earthquake in Iran kills 35,000 to 50,000 people. It also injures 60,000 to 105,000. And a 7.7 magnitude earthquake in the Philippines kills 1,600. See the Luzon earthquake. Uh, I think that's... Uh, I, no, you know what? I'm going to read the USSR is going bye-bye because, well... We, we, we can't skip this. It's too big of a monumental thing. Uh, Soviet President Gorbachev proposes restructuring of the Soviet government. Gorbachev has granted special powers to transition the USSR to a market economy. Gorbachev wins the Nobel Peace Prize, lessening international tensions and reforming the Soviet Union. Poland withdraws from the Warsaw Pact. East and West Germany agree reunification and merge of their economies. Kind of, that all kind of just went right past me because I was busy getting my head shaved and not really paying attention to world news except the stuff that, you know, like like that should have been, you know, monumental. But the fact is, if you were in the military at this time, especially as a young soldier, the only thing you were thinking about was the desert. I, I really had no clue all that was going on while it was going on. I knew soon afterward, but I, I wasn't glued to the TV seeing it happen because there was no TV. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, let's read... Pale Blue Dot by Southpaw Ben, and then I'll pick the one of the other two I'm going to read by Alex Strug, because they're both awesome. Pale Blue Dot, contributed by Southpaw Ben. Less than a pixel. Among bands of sunlight, one can just barely make out a tiny dot against the black streaked backdrop. This is the last picture of Earth, taken by Voyager 1 space probe, done at the behest of famed astronomer and author Carl Sagan. Taken on February 14th, They were transmitted to Earth between March and May. Carl Sagan was quoted as saying of the picture, quote, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives on that dot. My take by Southpaw Ben. This is a picture to look at and think about when your life is crazy and nothing seems to be going right and you're completely overwhelmed with life. It helps put everything in perspective. You are but a minuscule piece of dust on a piece of dust in a grand scheme of things. But at the same time, you should also be working to make this dot better. Like Jack says always, make that dash matter. While this dot seems to be almost nothing, at the same time, it is everything. I, I could not read that today. I, I really, I always loved Carl Sagan and the work that he did and the concept of Pale Blue Dot. Um, the book Pale Blue Dot by Sagan was one of the first audiobooks I ever uh, purchased, and I listened to it probably a dozen times in a row. Uh, I was that enamored with it, and I still am. So let's take a look at the state of clean air in America, because I have some thoughts on this, too, uh, from my childhood, as Alex Shrug does. It says, little by little, a good idea is turning into something oppressive and wrong, but right now, cleaning up the air is a good idea. Non-smoking sections are provided in restaurants, but smoking is still allowed in bars, except in San Luis, San Luis Obispo. But who goes there to drink? Smoking is completely banned on cross-country flights, since the common air system makes non-smoking section a joke. I'm going to pause there. I've always said that a no-smoking section in an airplane is like a no-peeing section in a swimming pool. They're just about as effective, just right there. All right. Laws in California have long since placed controls on automotive emissions, and it has been made a big difference. California has instituted a zero-emissions vehicle initiative that requires 2% of all vehicles sold to produce no emissions at all. Okay, fine, the car manufacturers can produce a zero-emissions vehicle, but the batteries must be replaced in a year and a half, so who's going to buy them? 
And now the federal government has expanded the Clean Air Act to address acid rain and disease-causing pollutants. The government summary of this law is vague, but they will find polluters, run a pollution credit trading market, and require a radical reduction in pollution for manufacturers. In problem areas like Los Angeles, trash burning and home incinerators is outlawed. This is all for the good, but we know it won't stop there. My take by Alex Shrugged. As a child, I lived in a Los Angeles area. The smog was thick and acidic. Uh, when I would look, when I would come home from elementary school, I would lay down, my lungs burning, my eyes were red. It would take about a half an hour to recover. This was normal. The smog is trapped up next to the mountains and builds up until the rain washes it away. Since the L.A. area is a desert, rain is an infrequent event. Something had to be done, and many of the initial measures seemed to help. But as the requirements have become more onerous, mechanical devices to reduce smog are not as efficient as computer modifications to the engine. The computer modifications must be helping because I notice the error is better, but I also know computers can be programmed to realize when an emissions check is being run. They can automatically tweak the engine parameters to produce the best results for the test and then reset the parameters to the best driving. With your, when your graphics card does this, it's called slick marketing strategy. When a car does it, it's called lying. VW was recently fined for doing this, but they are not the only ones. They are simply the ones who got caught. Like, you know, here's my thing. When you look at clean air, And the reforms mainly that came out in the 70s and were pushed through the 80s up till this point, 1990, um, there's no doubt that you have to give the government credit when the government gets something done. And they did clean the air up. And the air was bad. And many of you who are younger than me or never lived in a place where you experienced it may not know how bad it was. I lived as a young child in Jacksonville, Florida. And it was a major industrial center with paper mills and other mills on the river that just had this acrid smoke coming out of them. And as much as everybody wanted to blame the cars, it was more industry that was, was damaging our air than the cars themselves. The cars' emissions, frankly, are, are, are fairly clean comparative to, you know, a smokestack spewing out, I, I swear to God, sometimes it was blue. What the hell was that? And I remember there were two bridges that went over the St. John's River. There's the St. Matthews and the Hart. There were actually more, but there were two main bridges that people would cross. And it was, for some reason, It was the Hart Bridge, which was a higher bridge. When you drove across that, you almost couldn't see to drive. Now, I wasn't driving. I was a passenger. But your eyes turned red and tears came out of your eyes, and it felt like you were breathing. The only way I could describe it is burnt electronics. It was horrible. And, and we don't have that anymore. And that is a good thing. But you know what the government always does. It always grows and it always increases. It would have been really simple to say, hey, here's the standard, done. But no, we have to have agencies and we have to go after people. I mean, I just watched a John Stossel segment where a guy went to prison. He went to prison because they had the lobsters in the wrong containers when they were shipped from Honduras. They said it was a Honduran law and he violated international law. And even Honduras said, there's nothing, you, you, there's nothing here. The guy went to prison over it for shipping lobsters. Been doing it for 20 years. This is what happens when government gets involved. So my point is not that you know the government was wrong to clean up the air. That there are better ways to clean up the air than give people with guns the power to threaten people who haven't actually done anything. And if you want a case of the government doing shit it's not supposed to do to people that didn't do anything wrong, then read the Secret Service crackdown on internet crime contributed by Alex Shrug for today's uh, Wikipedia or um, TSP Wiki entry. It's uh. It's a, it's very, very clear that the government knew they were wrong and they went after these people anyway. And, uh, fortunately the good guys won, but what a cost. 
you want to know more about it, check it out, and it'll make my point uh, even stronger. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, so a, a couple bit more, more things here uh, at the beginning. Like I said, I do have an MSB sale going on now. And I want to talk a little bit about Patreon, too, uh, at the beginning of today's show. If you're a contributor and you're supporting me as a patron over on Patreon, at $3 or above, one of the things that I do for patrons over there is they get commercial-free versions of this show. Friday, um, I got confused, and I used the same file in both places, and the one that went on Patreon had commercials in it. And I fixed that this morning when I found out about it, and in general, they'll be commercial-free. However, if you're on Patreon and you're listening to the commercial-free feed, and you're hearing this right now, you're saying, well, you're going to talk about MSB and Patreon, you know, so this is I want to be clear what non-commercial means. Non-commercial means, and even some of what I take out, like on the non-commercial feed, I take the history segment out too. It's because it's just easier. So I don't, I don't, you know, do the standard promotion of the MSB. I don't do our regular sponsors. And I take the history segment out, and I don't do the Amazon spot at the end. And I, that's, that all comes out. It shortens the show down. But that doesn't mean I'll never talk about MSB or that I'll never talk about, you know, other things that are, you know, involved with the business because at times I think it's important. So, like, knowing that the MSB is on sale right now I think is important. And right now you can get your, your first year of MSB for $30 and you lock the rate in. So that's good if you want to become a member. They'll put a post out today. Uh, but you can go to the, uh, the website, click on members and click on join at the bottom. And uh, the discount code is SPRING17, because it's spring and it's 2017, so SPRING17. That'll get you $30 a year. If you pay by you know, cash, check, money order by mail, just write it on the form and adjust your payment accordingly, $30 a year. And if you want to pay by Bitcoin, then uh, send me an email, check out the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC Bitcoin in the subject line, and I will hook you up because I can't automatically do discounts with Bitcoin. So I'll just say, here, send it here, and I'll take care of it type of thing. So that, that's really all I have on MSB for the sale. Now, the other thing I wanted to let you know about MSB, though, for those that are MSB members, is I just put a ton of new content in. Um, I've been asked many times to zip up all the five minutes with Jack uh, interviews, not interviews, podcasts, which is a business podcast I did like 124 episodes of. And uh, apparently one of our listeners had already done that, had them in his Dropbox. I said, dude, just take them and upload them. So this morning I did that. So every episode of Five Minutes with Jack, which is basically, I'd say it's better it's, it's better than a year of college on business. Uh, uh, not to float my own boat or nothing, but it really is. And it's available for free at jackspeargo.com, but you got to go one by one and get them and all. They're just all of the zip files are now on the download page of the MSB. And then the other thing is I finally got all of the videos from the spring workshop, there's 14 
high-definition videos on all kinds of stuff, aquaponics, a, a, a property walk with me, um, leatherworking, woodworking, knife-making, all kinds of great stuff, and that's all in the MSB. It's in the video section as well. Those are on Vimeo, and they're available for download. So just that's just new content that's in there. So, again, if you're a patron and you're paying the 3 bucks and up, you're occasionally going to hear some stuff like this. I hope it's okay because, well, you're going to, because I, there's certain things I need to communicate. Um, that said, let's, uh, let's take a little bit of a look at some feedback that I got today that kind of like, I didn't really, exp I didn't really know that's what I was going to get because it was, uh, in response to the sale actually, uh, the guy just renewed, but he says at the end, he says, and this is from Jason, he says, on a side note, you often speak of how automation will take over in the future and I too feel this to be true. So let me tell you about a meeting I was in last week with some corporate engineers at Westrock. They flat out said their 15-year goal is to have all of their plants fully automated with very little to no employees. I don't know if you know about them, but they're a huge company, and that's thousands of employees. Westrock, indeed, I do know who Westrock is. Um, see, here's the thing, though. People go, wow, that's a lot of people. It's hundreds, thousands of companies just like this. And some levels, I feel that the, the, the automation engineers think that they're going to be safe. But I think that there's going to be very few of those left in the end, too. Because they're going to have you basically replace yourself. You replace everybody else first, and then you replace yourself. Uh, and they'll go to a contract model, because basically what they'll need is when they need to modify something or update something or change something or fix something, then they need talent, right? They need a talented engineer. Well, they don't want to staff that person. So they'll, they'll go, that's the, you know, 1099 generation two, basically, you know. Um, so they might keep a few people on staff, and when they need extra help, they'll pull in uh, contract engineers is how this is going to work. And again, I, I, I hope you realize, like, th these are everything from very low-level jobs to very high-level jobs that are going to be affected by this. And... My my message, again, is not one of gloom and doom. It's one of opportunity. What can you do that's resilient? What can you do that brings value add to the marketplace? How can you improve your own skill sets and your knowledge and your ability to do things? Because let me tell you what's not going to get automated. Let's talk about what, what won't be automated. Some guy has a hole in his roof. There's not going to be a robot in our lifetime that's going to go up on the roof and fix his hole. Now, I'm not going to say there's not going to be a, 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 a robot capable of putting a roof on. That's not what I said. I'm talking about just fixing a hole. Or a person decides that they wanted to build a deck, and it, they, they are okay with doing parts of it, but they need someone to help finish it. There's not going to be a, a deck-building robot. Again, not that that can't be done, but they're one-off jobs. If you're going to put in a, a housing development, and a selling point is, every house has a 500-square-foot deck, and they're all the same, then that fits automation really, really well. But building a deck, sealing a fence, fixing an electrical problem. You see where I'm going? Like the basic handyman world. There, there's always work for people like that. Now, could there be too many people doing it? Sure there could, but there's not, and there's not going to be either. And that's just one example. We don't always have to... See, what, what I'm, what's bothering me now is... As usual, the state is 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 beating this drum of we need more education, higher education. You know, we need more people going in engineering. More there's a, there's a, a a finite point of how many people you can have doing this shit when the whole world is moving toward more and more automation and reducing headcount. 
And just uh, real quick again, I worked with a company for a long time called Syrian. I was actually a co-owner in the holding company that owned that company. So in a way, I was an owner of it. And what we did was network optimization and planning and development and capital deferment for the cellular telecommunications industry. That's what we did. And we used self-learning algorithms. Now, I didn't, just for an example of like the Henry Ford thing, like you could have people working for you that are a lot smarter than you and you should. I didn't know how to do this stuff. I knew what the stuff did and how to communicate it to somebody else so that they'd want it in their company, all right, and how to manage the people in that company. So when I say we wrote self-learning uh, algorithms, I don't know how to do that, just to be clear. So I don't like, you know, so I'm not like, making something sound like it's, it's not. I want to be clear about that. Anyway, so what we did as a company is we wrote self-learning algorithms into a computer interface that allowed us to take the network by individual node or region from a carrier, let's say AT&T, and determine exactly what was going on with their network, how fast it was growing, how fast it was going to grow, where new equipment needed to go, where new equipment didn't need to go. And basically, where if they didn't do certain things, their network would fall over, just like not work. So six months before this happened, we told them their whole network in New York City was going to fall over. They didn't believe it. About 30 days from that point, not from, not from us telling them, 30 days from that six-month deadline, they figured it out themselves it was going to happen. And they were shitting their pants when they caught back with us and said, can you fix it? And we're like, yeah, we can fix it. We can tell you what to do to fix it. But it had been a lot easier five months ago. And that, they pretty much became our number one customer after that. But the reason we always had trouble selling this solution is it replaced hundreds of engineers. Hundreds of engineers. They were all doing things with spreadsheets. I'm serious. You had one tool that you could plug into their network, download the data, and know. What people would sit around a table and argue about for a month before they came to a consensus on what to do, this predictive tool already knew what to do And that was 2006. Got it? 2006. And there was billions in stranded capital in these networks as well. And we still had resistance because you were selling the tool to the people that it would replace. But sooner or later, it's going to happen anyway. And what they're doing now, I, I believe in a lot of places, there is a level of compassion in industry, whether you believe it or not. And they're letting these people atrophy out as they get older and they go away and they get pushed into early retirements, etc. And they're not replacing them. And that's going to move the ceiling down of where people can move up to in organizations. And it's just going to keep coming. And then when they bring new people in, it'll be to implement these solutions. And that'll further, see, that's, that's how this is going. So just, again, always keep your ear to the ground and your eyes up and know what's going on, and be planning for your own future so that you have some additional plan, some additional side hustle, some something. Please do that. Uh, I, I can't be clear enough how important I think this is. Um, here's a question for Ben. Ben says, um, in fact, it's Southpaw Ben. Could you tractor grazing gosling geese? If you can, how many square foot would each goose need? This summer I'm getting 10 straight-run mixed goslings from Metzer Farm to raise as a summer project. With the current plan... I butcher them before I return to college. We have several acres of pasture, but only a perimeter fencing made for horses, so it would do nothing to keep the geese in and predators out. 
The tractor would be able to be moved daily to new pasture. However, if tractoring isn't possible, the plan would be to move electro-netting. Any thoughts or advice would be appreciated. Thank you for your show and all the advice you give uh, and thought-provoking questions you ask, Southpaw Ben. All right, Ben, well, thank you for your contributions to TSP Wiki, first of all. And um, also, I wanted to uh, give you some ideas here on, on how to do this. So... I would say if you're going to build a tractor for, for this many birds, that something along the lines of using a couple of the uh, hog panels, cattle panels, uh, in an eight-foot square, so you basically make it like a little, uh, what do you call it, like a covered wagon style, those ones, uh, would probably work. And you probably won't be too crowded in there, but geese eat a lot of grass. And there's, there's one big difference between geese and chickens. You know, one would think a chicken tractor that could hold 50 chickens, surely it, it could handle 10 geese. And it probably can accept geese crap big. I mean, from the time they're about four-week-old goslings, they start taking, it, it's, it's, it's massive. And then they have webbed feet, so it gets mashed and matted. And it's pretty gross. And... So they'll mess up, you know, an eight foot by eight foot area pretty quick. And that's kind of in the area of what you're talking about with that style of chicken tractor. But it may be the best thing to do. Um, and 10, it'll probably be okay. And you also have to think about some other things, and I'll, I'll try to help you cover those. So you mentioned predators. I don't know how big an issue predators are going to be for you. I really don't. So that's something you need to think about. Because you can't put goslings, little goslings, in Electronet. They'll kill themselves. They really will. They need to be, you know, about the size of a, a a big, I guess, like a like a pint jar, you know, about that big, before you go putting them in electronetting, because they'll get stuck in it and they'll 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 fry themselves to death. So, how big a threat are your predators, and how do you want to do this? Because let's start talking about some other numbers here too. Let's talk about time. How much time we need to do this? In general. These birds need to be brooded for three weeks. And they still need to have a way to stay dry when it rains after three weeks because they're still going to be fuzzy and they can still go down because even though they can handle extreme cold, when they're fuzzy yet and they get wet and they can't get warm and they can't get dry, they go poultry, I mean, sorry, uh, waterfowl goes down so fast. It's unbelievable. They need, so by the time they've learned to preen, as long as they can get out of the wet, As long as they can get somewhere warm, they're fine. But up to three weeks, they need to be able to do all that, and they need a little bit of it past them. For that first three weeks, they're pretty small. In fact, even for like four and five, they're pretty small yet. So I have a four-foot by eight-foot tractor that I've done geese in. I've never done ten in it, but I've done six in it up to about four weeks of age. And what I did with it is I put them in it, and I covered the top, with plywood, so they, they just wouldn't get rained on. There would always be somewhere they could get out of the rain. And so the plywood wouldn't go bad. I just took the, stuck the plywood in a gar like contractor garbage bag and taped it closed and just laid two sheets of plywood over the, the, the tops of it. And then I had another piece that I would put for the, later in the day when the sun would come in at an angle, I'd put on one side or the other to keep it shaded. And I also put a heat lamp on one side of that and no heat lamp on the other. This let them basically be brooded outside. Now, I don't know if you want to do that or not, but I did my geese that way from their, their first day on the first round of geese. I lost none. And I, I did my geese that way, the second group, and we lost one that had nothing to do with That's why. So it can be done, but it's not necessary. 
If you're going to brew them in a brooder, you got to really think about water and making sure they can drink, but they can't get themselves soaking wet because, again, they'll go down fast. So I really recommend a floor drain system like you've seen me use in Duck Chronicles. You go back to, like, the first season of Duck Chronicles at duckchronicles.com, third or fourth episode in, you'll see the basics of how to do that. And I did, like, a, a larger one in, in a different type of environment this year. So at some point, then, we're going to get them outside. If predators are a big concern, then you kind of have to do the tractor thing or you have to do some sort of electric situation. And we can use electronet, and that's a fine thing to do as long as we can get them big enough before they go in the electronet. That, that works really, really great. It's probably your easiest and best solution, though I don't know that's your least expensive, and it's very specialized, so if we're not going to do it again anytime soon, it's going to just sit there because we need probably a solar uh, charge controller, We need the electronet itself, the poles, to go into the ground. And occasionally birds still find their way out of this stuff. Okay, So here's what I use for my birds when they're young and I'm tractoring them. I take four 16-foot panels and I take uh, chicken wire and put that across the bottom of them because so they, otherwise they can get through them. So you, just take, you, know, you only need like a, a, a one or two foot high roll of the stuff. And you lay it on the ground, you roll it out, and you just wire it to the bottom so that they can't get out. Just a physical barrier. And then I tie wrap them together into a 16-foot square. Now, 10 geese, you'd have no problem moving them once every day to every other day on that. And what your big problem is you don't have perimeter fencing. So you can't do what I do, which is I, I'll put them in there. They'll be in one spot for two or three days, but they're only in there at night. I just open it up and let them go. You can't do this. You'd probably have to move them every day. It would probably make sense for you to rig up some sort of a, you know, some wheels or something on a little cart that you can sit down there and make moving this thing easier. Otherwise, you have to do it the way I do it because I don't, I don't have them in there enough to really care about this, and I can move it when they're out. But what I do is I just keep the tie wraps all tie wrapped all four, and I just pull one end at a time. You can pull a couple feet on each end, and then you have to straighten the back out, and then you have to do it again. And the back always bows on you, and if you if you don't go back there and straighten it out, you'll snap your tie wraps. So you can just drag this thing, you know. 16 feet at a time, and they'll figure out real quick that when you start dragging it, there's new grass and they'll follow it. That's the easiest, quickest thing you can do. Now, if you wanted to, um, it would be pretty easy to get yourself some uh, you know, electric fence wire and some standoffs and just basically put a ring around the bottom and the top of that to keep your predators out. Now, this isn't going to help with avian predators, though. So I don't know if you have a lot of hawks that you have to deal with. So if you don't have hawks and you're more worried about raccoons and foxes, you know, you put one around the top, one around the bottom. You still need your solar uh, charger uh, and, you know, to, to your solar energizer. But, you know, you would need that with Electronet anyway. That'll be easier and quicker. But you can do it. There's no doubt about it. Now let's talk about the other number to consider here. The best time to slaughter geese is 11 to 12 weeks. So I don't know how long you have planned for this, but you know a summer's about right. You know, but it's 11 to 12 weeks. So if we brood for three weeks, then we're only on grass for about nine weeks. So that makes what you have to do a little easier to, to figure some different things out. Because another thing you could do is build yourself a couple chicken tractors, you know, eight by eight chicken tractors, and put five in each one. And that, that would be another way to go. So it, it's kind of up to you how you want to deal with that. It just It's a lot easier to move something that's not too large, not too heavy. Um, the guests that we just had on that talked about the building chicken tractors, those would probably work really good for 10 geese. 
but I, I can't see those being a problem. So if you get his book, you can uh, you can knock those out pretty easy. He gives you every part, every piece. I don't remember his name, um, but real quick, let me look it up. His name was John Suskovich, and it was episode 1982 of the Survival Podcast. So what, eight episodes ago, April 12, 2017, you can pull up that episode. Just go to the, the website and put 1982 in the uh, search bar, and it'll pull it right up for you. Uh, I think his tractors have worked pretty good for 10 geese. I'm a little leery on that, but again... Depending on how long you plan on having, if you're going to have them out on grass for six weeks, you know you might move them twice a day instead of once. And what his des- I, I really like his design, guys. I, I really do. I'm thinking about starting to actually run uh, one or two groups of tra- tra- tractored chickens here at uh, our farm just for our personal use. If I do it, his his design is probably the one I'm going to use. It just seems like of all the ones I've looked at so far, probably about the best. Okay, so next up is kind of a question that caught me off guard, at least at at first. Um, it's from Larry, and Larry says, If you could use GMO to turn annuals into perennials, would you do it? And when I sit there and I think about that question, I think maybe a better way to view that question is, are there things we could do with genetic modification to plants that we should do? Whether it's this one or not is like if we can actually use genetic modification to make plants more drought resistant, should we do it? If we can use genetic modification to make a plant that's susceptible to a disease like a blight, not get blighting more. I mean, one of the things that's it's so difficult in many parts of the country with growing tomatoes is early blight. So if we could use GMO to make a tomato not get early blight, should we do it? And the answer, I think, is a very big, it depends. Why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? And what do we do with it? So should we make guns any more powerful than they already are? Or are guns powerful enough? I think it depends on why you want to make a gun more powerful and, uh, and what reasonable belief that you have that, you know, They won't be used for things, you know, worse things because they're more powerful, I guess, is a way to look at it. And I have no problems with making guns more powerful than they already are right now. But uh, I, I do think that that maybe is a good way to look at this. Like we, when you do something like this, you have the consequence. And what is that consequence and how easy is it to control that consequence? So there's a huge part of this audience that I know what you're thinking. No, no, hell no, 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 no. And maybe, maybe. But, I mean, this goes to the heart of what I've said about genetic modification for years. I'm not so concerned that we're genetically modifying things. I'm concerned with how we're doing it and why we're doing it. So when we're genetically modifying something so that it can be sprayed with an herbicide twice or three times, like genetically modified soy, uh, like genetically modified corn, we use glyphosate on one and atrazine on the other, and that herbicide, which is not good for people, is then ingested by people, I have a big concern with that. There are some genetic modifications in the gene stacking that companies like Monsanto and Conagra and Bear are doing with things like corn, where it's not just so the corn can be sprayed, it's so the corn's more drought resistant. Well, again, so then my question becomes, does that mean that we just are able to further abuse soil and, 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 and worry less about doing things to the land so that it will hold more water? So my, my big concern with GMOs is, one, the direct health risk, and then number two is allowing us to further abuse our land. 
instead of doing things that are conservational, that are necessary to fix the damage that we've done. Because agriculture historically creates deserts. That's what it does. The, the, the thing that gives us life is also the thing destroy and taking life. And so many places that agriculture has gone have become deserts in the wake of agriculture. So if we're going to further empower man to just abuse the shit out of the land, that concerns me. And then the third is the unintended consequences of what you've done. So if we empower a plant with a certain ability that it didn't used to have, can that plant then become an invasive species? And many people would say, well, if tomatoes and peppers want to invade my backyard, I'm kind of okay with it. I kind of am too, but what are the long-term consequences of altering the genetic pool? And how are we doing this? Are we doing a genetic modification that could occur in nature and we're accelerating natural mutation? Or are we taking the genetics from a fish and putting it into a cottonseed? See, to me, those are also very, very different. Because if we're just moving stuff around within corn or peppers or tomatoes, then the modifications we're creating could happen in time naturally. And when the agricultural industry lies to us like we're stupid and says man has been genetically modifying crops for over 10,000 years, they're full of shit. That's selective breeding. So if we use genetic modification to speed up selective breeding, I'm, I'm not as concerned as if we're taking... Genetic material from an organism that could never propagate with corn or soy or peppers or tomatoes and putting it in there. Foreign DNA. These things concern me. The other thing is, well, what happens once we've done it? Does it become patented as a life form like all these things and controlled by a single company? If somebody saves their seeds, are they violating a patent? You know, if we're patenting life forms, I have a huge problem with that too. I don't think we should be patenting life forms. Um, and it's one thing to patent the ability to produce that seed for resale. It's another thing to patent it for producing that seed to save it and use it again. I mean, that's, that's, those are different things. Um, very, very different things. And you're talking about something that once it's, once it's loose on the environment, you know, it can just keep going. It can self-reproduce. You can't ever put the genie back in the bottle. So these are things that I do have concerns over. But I do think there might be legitimate use of genetic modification. I mean, one example is the work that's being done with the American chestnut to bring the American chestnut back to, to see how little of the Chinese chestnut genetics you can have in there and still have the blight resistance. Now, we screwed that tree up. If we can use science to bring it back and we're not spraying it with something, and we're not chemicalizing it with something, then maybe we should bring it back. It was a huge loss to our ecosystems. And it's not this, it's like, well, we can just grow Chinese chestnuts. They're not the same. They're just not the same. If they were, there would have never been a problem. There wouldn't be a market for American chestnuts today from the few small areas where it still grows in the Northwest. Very, very protected and gilded, by the way. And those people are not a fan of bringing the chestnut back to America, even though they make a living off it, because, well, they make a living off it. You see how things get gray here. So let's go back to the core of the question, then. We could take annuals and turn them into perennials with GMOs. Should we do it? Well, in many instances, a lot of things that we think of as annuals are perennial. They just aren't perennial in our climate. Let's look at a pepper. Do you know peppers are perennials? They're actually mid-term uh, living perennials, meaning you know, 10 to 20 years a pepper bush can live. Why don't they live that long here? Because it freezes. But if you go to places where it never freezes, peppers are a shrub. 
They grow as a shrub. They're huge. And they live for many, many seasons, especially if they're maintained and pruned, etc. So the only thing we actually would need to do with a pepper, whether selective breeding or genetic modification, would be to, to, to lower its threshold on how cold it can get before it, it freezes. If you could lower that to 20 degrees Fahrenheit, then peppers would be perennial anywhere where the temperature didn't drop below 20 degrees. You see how that works. We look at a tomato. A tomato is an annual. A tomato is a true annual, but it's also a self-reseeding annual. This self-reseeds very, very, very well in, in its native climate where it doesn't freeze or freezes for very short periods of time. So there's, there's all types of ways that could be done, but I, I would imagine you're thinking more along the, the things of grain. What if we could genetically modify corn? Corn grows. We take the corn cobs away. We cut the corn to the ground. We shred it up. We throw it right back onto the ground from which it grew as a mulch. And next year, another crop of corn just grows. Cool, huh? Is it possible? I, it's, it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible that we could develop, because it's a grass. Corn is a grass. So could we develop an annual grass into a perennial grass? Probably, in some way, shape, or form. Would it be a good thing? Seems like it. But would, would it actually help, depend on how it's used? It would depend on how it's used. Now, I have a feeling the GMO companies don't have a, a, a real, like, a real uh, hankering to do this, though. Like, they really wouldn't want to do this. It wouldn't benefit them very much. Now you'd sell the seed to the farmer one time, and he'd manage his cornfield like a, a stand of grass. So I, the, the question, how I said, would have to be situational. What are we doing, and, and what will the result be within reasonable notes? We're going to take and make wheat into a perennial grass. We're going to have true perennial wheat, which people are pretty close to, by the way, but it just doesn't quite work out ever the way that they said. But we can actually replace the tilling and replanting of wheat with a perennial wheat, should we do it? Well, well maybe. Because, I, I see, my view is I think that we have to radically transform farming in the first place. And perennial might not be the best thing in some situations. Here's a, a farm that I visited in Missouri, how, how this man is doing things. He has rows. I think his rows are 18 feet. Whatever they are, it's enough that he can make two passes with his tractor and he's covered both rolls to cut them or to plow them or, or what have you. And then there'll be a row of corn. And he's growing a very nutritious, nutritiously dense, high beta-carotene corn that's like orange. It's pretty awesome looking stuff. And the next row will be either uh, a grain or uh, a forage crop or a legume. And then it will go to another row of corn. And then it will be another row that's a, a grain or a forage crop or a legume or something like that. And I believe he has like five different crops in his rows. So each ten rows, 18 feet each, has five rows of corn and you know one each of these different uh, crops. And he has taken this land... And it's become so fertile in 10 years of doing this that he sent soil samples in to have them tested. And the guy from the county extension office got back to him and said, you're going to get in trouble. And he said, what do you mean I'm going to get in trouble? He goes, you're not supposed to be plowing up native prairie. So I'm not plowing up native prairie. That's from my farm. They couldn't believe it. It was as fertile as untouched native prairie soil 
in 10 years. Now, how bad was like, well, how bad was it to begin with? It was so bad that when he went down to the tax office and talked to the girl about some paperwork for the farm when he bought it, she said, oh, you're that idiot that bought that farm. We all wondered who was dumb enough to buy that farm. That's how bad it was. And on 18 acres, this guy's getting incredible yields. And he's getting multiple yields. You know, he's getting wheat and, and other yields off of it. And perennials really wouldn't work well in that situation for him. And what he's about to do next is start grazing ruminants in the inner strips. It's kind of like alley, alley cropping, but instead of trees, you're using corn. And he's actually using corn to make the soil more fertile and grass to make the soil more fertile. And there's so many ways we can do this, and we may cheat ourselves by simply genetically modifying crops to be able to continue to do things the way we've always done them. We're removing our incentive to evolve. So I do think there are things that we could do that would be beneficial. I think that if, if, if science really was on the side of people, and science was really on the side of right, and science could develop you know, tomatoes and potatoes, for instance, that didn't get late and early blight, and if they had to use genetic modification to get that done, that's not a terrible thing if that's what they're doing. And if the agricultural practices that use that seed are not being detrimental to the planet, then I, I actually don't have a problem with it. And I think it's because I'm open-minded about the subject. I'm not just, you know, anti-science, you know, like, like some people accuse me of. But as long as you're modifying crops so that you can abuse land, and just continue to abuse it worse than you ever have before, and so they can be sprayed with chemicals that are carcinogenic, then I'm not okay with that. And, and the majority of what these genetic modif modifying companies are doing is that. However, I will tell you that even they are going to a new, a new height, a new level. And it's, it's somewhat promising. It's called gene selection. And what they're actually able to do is look at thousands of seeds and pick the one, the one that's going to produce what they want, and then clone it. So they're not actually genetically modifying anything. What they're using is advanced genetic selection technologies that they can tell before they grow the seed. So instead of planting 300,000 seeds to find the one, you can look at 300,000 seeds and know the one. Or know the 10. Or know the 300 for your core. And then you begin reproducing that. I don't think that they'll be good stewards with it, but... I think it's a much more promising technology and a much safer technology than GMOs. So would I do it? It depends. But I think we could have very, very useful things that we could do with perennial weeds. They're a grass. We could grow it in stands, clumps, strips. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Comes back every year, grows tall. We can still do ground covers. You know, we could harvest it, and we could be growing something in the, in the substrata that after that wheat's harvested, you could graze it, and the wheat would come back even stronger the next year. Yeah, that could work, maybe. My, my, my concern, again, is that we're shortcutting things so that we're not actually solving the core problems. Because the core problems are how we've treated the land. And there's a story coming up in the future that will explain how simple some of the solutions really are. We'll get to that one in a bit. Um This uh, this next one, though, is a pretty simple one. It says, Jack, comes from Seth, Jack, I've been able to get two free 40-gallon pails of straw that were used as bedding for a chicken coop. There is some manure, but mostly straw. It has sat out in a pile over the winter and has not composted much. 
What is the fastest way I can compost it and make it usable uh, in an annual bed? I'm in zone 5B and nothing is growing yet, so I won't have any green material uh, to then for some time. Thanks for everything, Seth. Well, Seth, that's, that's a problem. Now, I don't know how much manure is in this pile of straw, and straw can remain dramatically dry, um, even when it's sitting out in the elements, if it's in a pile. It, it, it's amazing. When straw interlaces itself the way that it does, like thatching, it just sheds water, and you don't really get the core of your pile wet. So what you could try first is simply restack the straw and wet it down as you go. And there may be enough nitrogen in there to kick things off. And if it gets kicked off, you'll know. It'll be like three or four days, and you'll stick your hand in there, and you can't barely hold your hand in there without burning the shit out of it. And then you know you got to cook it, and you can let it cook for a while, and then turn it and get it going again. Keep it damp, keep it covered, and it may just compost for you. It may be that there's not enough nitrogen in there, and then I'm sorry, you have to find some source of nitrogen. So your 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 then your your choices are either a wait until your grass greens up. Uh, and that's not much. 80 gallons of straw, that's a couple, three bales. That's not much. So um, assuming it's not really tightly packed, it's not a huge amount. So you don't need much. Um, you know, like two bags from a bag mower. Or if you don't have a bag mower, I never bag it, but just, you know, just cut it and uh, just rake it up in a, you know, a, a wheelbarrow full. And you lay down a layer of straw and you sprinkle your green material in a layer of straw and you sprinkle your green material and then wet it down and keep doing that. That's another way. Or you find another source of nitrogen. So what you might do then is talk to all your friends and family and say, can you throw all of your compostables in a five-gallon bucket for me for the next two, three weeks? And just with, you know, leftover lettuces and stuff like that. And, and most of the stuff that we would throw away, other than coffee grounds, is generally a, a green. Uh, so it has a nitrogen component that we can get something to bond with. That would be another way. And that would be to ask around and see if you can find a source of manure. And you wouldn't need much manure. I mean, a, 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 a five-gallon bucket of manure would probably be enough uh, nitrogen with that quantity of straw to get things going and get it cooking. If you do nothing... Except restack it and wet it and keep restacking it and wetting it. Sooner or later, it'll start to break down for you. But you got to get it wet and you got to get it covered so it doesn't dry out. Those are, those are your two things you've got to do. Um, and again, the easiest solution might just be to wait on it and you're just going to have it for mid-season instead of the beginning of your season. And I, I kind of like to throw a little piece of advice out here for you guys. When it comes to gardening, especially in colder climates where the soil really takes some time to warm up, Please do yourself a favor and use some source of fertility other than compost, please, especially with gardens, because it's not that much that you need to cover the area. Here's the problem. Even with good compost, even with rich soil, there's a temperature that the soil's at, and the biological activity is very, very low. So even though the fertility is there, the plant has a hard time accessing it. And using something like Dr. Earth's Gold 444 um, All-Natural Fertilizer, something like that, where the stuff's more bioavailable, a little bit of a, like garret juice or, or, or you know kelp, so, you know kelp uh, seaweed soaking, all three of those together, some mycorrhizal fungi. So as the soil temperature comes up, they do begin to grow and make things more available. It will kickstart your efforts so much quicker. But I've seen so many people, especially in northern climates, you watch their garden, and it does take off eventually, but it's so lackluster in the beginning. And there's a pro young plants, when they just kind of don't get up and get going, they become much more susceptible to diseases and problems and stunting. 
uh, or they get chlorosis and it gets really hard to get rid. That's where the leaves start to yellow. So use some supplemental fertility that's immediately bioavailable early on. Get those plants up to a good start, and then by the time it warms up and that soil biology is working, your compost, your mulches, etc., will become more accessible to the plant. Uh, it, it, it just makes sense. Let's take another one. Okay, this is the one where I'm going to have to really work hard not to flip my, my lid here. I mean, really, just this is... I'm going to try to read this without getting angry, just so that you can hear the story without me screaming about it. Um, but it's, it's going to be hard to do, and when you hear it, you'll understand why. This is from the ACLU, who we don't agree with all the time, but we sure agree with sometimes, like right now. It was posted April 7, 2017, so it's a new story. It's by Sandra Park, Senior Staff Attorney for ACL Women's Rights, Pro Women's Rights Project. This Missouri city banishes domestic violence survivors for calling the police. Yeah, and seriously, seriously too. In 2012, the city of Maplewood, Missouri, ordered Rosa Watson, Rosetta Watson to vacate her home, but the city wasn't done punishing Watson yet. They also barred her from living anywhere in the city for six months. Her offense? She called the police four times seeking protection from her abusive ex-boyfriend. Under Maplewood's local ordinance, more than two calls to police regarding domestic violence within 180 days qualifies as a nuisance as do commission acts of prohibited by federal, state, or local law at the property. The ordinance does not exempt situations where the residents need to call police for help or where they are crime victims. Once Maplewood decides that a nuisance took place, it can revoke the residents' occupancy permits, which are required to live in Maplewood, and deny new ones for six months, exiling residents from the city. So first of all, this city has occupancy permit to permit you to live in the in, the, in its city limits. Th this is Orwellian to begin with. But you get this, okay? Here's what happened. Maplewood officials concluded that Mitz Washington should be removed from her home and banished from the city because she made calls for help with domestic violence, even though it was clear from the city's own records that her ex-boyfriend had physically assaulted her. She was forced to move to St. Louis, where he again attacked her. This time he broke in and stabbed her in the legs. Because of her experience in Maplewood, she feared calling the police and instead took herself to the hospital. When the hospital contacted the police, she was relieved to learn that law enforcement would not punish her. Her ex-boyfriend was arrested, convicted, and incarcerated. Yet she suffered the consequences of the nuisance ordinance for years, losing her Section 8 voucher in the process and moving from place to place unable to secure housing. The ACLU and the ACLU of Missouri filed a federal lawsuit today on behalf of Ms. Watson against Maplewood, asserting that its ordinance violates fundamental constitutional rights, including the First Amendment right to petition the government for assistance and rights of, to travel, equal protection, and due process. We also argue that the ordinance is preempted by Federal Violence Against Women Act. The case follows other suits brought by the ACLU challenging nuisance ordinances in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and Surprise, Arizona, on behalf of domestic violence survivors, resulting in repeals of local laws and monetary compensation. Local nuisance and crime-free ordinances that penalize calls for police service or criminal activity at a rental property often harm domestic violence victims the most, according to researchers, because their abusers may repeatedly target them at their homes. Harvard socialist sociologist and author evicted, of Evicted, Matthew Desmond, with his, and his, college, his colleague Nicole Valdez found that calls about domestic violence were the third most common reason for nuisance citation in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
an ACLU and Social Science Research Council study of Binghamton and Fulton, New York, determined that domestic violence made up the single largest category of criminal activity triggering enforcement of each city's law. The Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council similarly concluded that Maplewood discriminated in enforcing its law against domestic violence uh, victims, non-white residents, and people with disabilities. And Professor Gretchen Arnold of St. Louis University documented that serious harms to survivors' health, safety, and economic well-being because of nuisance laws. There's more to this article if you want to read it, but you get the point. The city basically passed the law and said, hey, if you're living here, and you call the police more than twice in, in six months for domestic violence, you've permitted a nuisance. What? What? I'm serious. If you got me the people in Maplewood in front of me right now that would defend this, that are actually responsible for it, I would punch each one of them in the face repeatedly. I, I, I would have no, no qualms about it. I would kick the shit out of these people if I could legally get away with it. I really would. You should have your asses kicked. You know, you should, you should be treated the way this woman was. That, that's what should happen to you. We live in a civilized society, so it won't, but that's justice. You piece of shit. You, you vehement piece of shit. You are not worthy of the title piece of shit. When the maggots are done eating the shit and the maggot shit, that's almost as low as these people. You threw a woman out of your city because she was being abused? Why didn't you arrest the son of a bitch that was beating her? What is wrong with people? And this is what you get from the state. This is what you get from the state. The state's solutions are always about violence. And it's always okay for them to commit violence. And it's always okay for people to be victimized if they're people that are kind of annoying to the state. I mean, the lady's on Section 8. By God, she's living on taxpayer dollars. Well, you're the ones that set that system up, aren't you? Yeah, you are. It doesn't matter. If we're going to have a state, then one thing by God that we should have is a reasonable expectation of, of intervention and protection during violence. But do you know what? The police are not required to protect you. They're only required to enforce the laws. I mean, we'd like to believe that the police are required to protect us, but Supreme Court case law says they're not. I think, you know, if we're going to have local ordinances, maybe we need some new local ordinances that actually say that when we charter a police force in our town, that their first duty is to protect the population. Didn't you say protect and serve on the cars? Remember they took that off? Yeah, because they don't have to protect anymore. And serving, you know, they serve warrants. When you have somebody beating somebody, and this is ridiculous because we just had a story last week where... If someone touches somebody in domestic violence, they have to take somebody to jail. So he pushed somebody at a Thanksgiving thing, and they took somebody to jail over it with like no officer discretion. But you throw this woman out because you don't want to do your job. That's really what it comes down to. They don't want to do their jobs. And I can understand how this happens. You might be thinking, how the hell does this happen? I'll tell you how this happens. There's families that are flipping nuts. They basically have died in the wool scream fest, and, and, and everybody's drunk and screaming and high or whatever, and screaming at each other and slapping each other around every weekend. It happens. There was a family that lived not too far from us, Rugger Road in Pennsylvania, that was like this. They'd be out screaming at each other all the time. Now it's a different time, and since nobody was beating on anybody, you know, then the, the police never came, and there was one cop anyway. But imagine a, a, a more sizable city where you're at this place. Five times every six months. You're there every month. 
you're there every other week sometimes. And, and there's nothing to be done. It's just you calm everybody down, send everybody on their way, and go home. That's where this comes from. But you see, there's a point where people start to use their freaking brains, isn't there? And, and the number is preposterous. Two calls in 180 days? I mean, if you know anything about domestic violence, you know it's, it's a cycle, a repetitive cycle of abuse. So basically what it means is I can abuse you as my wife. I can be careful that I only scare you, right? My wife or my girlfriend. I don't really hurt you. I get you to call the police on me. When the police come and go, I don't know what the hell she's talking about. There's not a mark on her. I didn't touch her. She was yelling at me. I yelled back at her. I don't, I, I don't know. And then tomorrow I can smack the crap out of you, beat you to shit, and if you call the police, they're going to throw you out of town. That's what they've set up. You should find out if there's anything like this where you live. And if there is, the, 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 the clowns that are responsible for it need to go in the next election. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm the anarchist. I'm the guy that says don't vote. Shit like this in local, city and town, you can, you can get rid of people like this really, really quick. People that do this shit, you do not belong in public service. Here's what I'd like to say. The people that are part of this, this these people in Maplewood, the, 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 the elected officials that want to defend this, I dare one of you to speak to me about it. I don't mean getting your ass kicked like I said earlier. It's a civilized society. I can't kick your ass and get away with it. Should be able to, but I can't. No, I mean, I want you to come on the air with me and explain to people why this makes sense and why you did it to this person. And you know what? None of you will because you're cowards. Anybody that knows anybody in Maplewood, get this to these people. Tell them. It's an open invitation. You can come and make your case. You can come and explain your side of it. And that I know you won't because you're a bunch of effing cowards. You're a bunch of effing cowards. What if it was your daughter, who some son of a bitch was abusing, that was thrown out of the town, and then that son of a bitch went to the other town, broke in her house, stabbed her legs, and she was so scared from what happened, she was afraid to call the police. How would you feel? You cowards. You're effing cowards. You make me sick. You want to prove that, we, that the state is, is unjust? You want to prove that the state has is, is run its course as, as an entity? That it's time for a new way of dealing with situations? Here it is. Here it is. But I'll tell you what. You have people doing something like this where you are. They need to go. They need to go in the net. If, you, there's a, if there's a mechanism for recall, they need to go. For allowing it to exist on the books, they need to go. Quickly. Let's take another one before I snap my, my gasket. So this uh, next one... The guy says, name John, and he sends me a link. It says, 50 years ago, this was a wasteland. He changed everything from National Geographic. Fried chicken tycoon David Bamber used his fortune to purchase 5,500 acres of overgrazed land in the Texas Hill Country. See the full story. And you guys can, I have a link in the show notes so you can watch this video. It's about eight minutes long. You should watch it. It'll make your day. It'll give you hope. And basically, the, the story, though, is that this guy, so, you know, like, who's David Bramberger? Never heard of him. You've probably heard of Church's Chicken. He was one of the two guys that originally started Church's Chicken. And he became so successful, like, 46 years ago, he sold out his stake, and he went and bought this piece of land. So it says 50, but it's really 46 years. And uh, I know where this area is. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty harsh area in the, in the hill country of Texas. It's probably about two and a half, three hours from me. And if you know anything about my property, it's it's like that, only more harsh and less rain. So it's not desert, but it's it's less rain than we get here. 
And uh, he buys this land and, like, it's all just cedar. And if you know anything about the, the damaged land on a lot of the sagebrush steppe and, and things like that, it's not only cedar, it's juniper. And it's everywhere. And it does live and it does grow and it does survive, but it's not good for the ecosystem. It's actually a native plant. It belongs there, but not in the quantity that it's in. And cedar survives because it gets incredibly deep roots into the rocks, which would seem like a good thing, but it's really not. And it also causes water to shed instead of soak in. And when it does rain, it takes it up. So the biggest change that they made, well, the first thing that they drilled four wells, 500 feet deep, and couldn't find a drop of water 500 feet deep. And I got to drill the wells for him. I think it was the, the fifth well he drilled. Said I, I, I got into this thing, and the, the bit just dropped 80 feet. You've got a cavern down there, but it's empty. It's dry. There's nothing in it. So they cut out the cedars. They did some earthworks, and they planted perennial grasses. Perennial grasses, not annual grasses. Deep-rooted perennials that got down, and they caused the water to begin to infiltrate. And in just two years, the cavern filled up, and their first spring came out. Now they have dams on the property, wildlife. The place is beautiful. It's managed like a savanna. Guess what it is? It's permaculture. But no one there is using that word. They just did what worked. It's amazing. It'll inspire you. And I love this guy because towards the end of this little eight-minute short video, he says, and the government's running around spending all kinds of money, and he pulls out this, this big clump of grass with these long roots. He goes, this is what we need. For these situations, this is what we need right here. We can do this. We can't expect the government to fix this. We need to fix this ourselves. And when I was doing some research on this guy, I found on his website like a ton of videos that are all free, HD, high-quality high produced videos, different interviews and things he's given, explaining what he's done. And I have a link to that in the show notes as well to, for you today. So get a look at that. I think that'll, uh, that'll make you feel a little bit better uh, about our future, to know there's people like that in it. And notice it wasn't a poor person or a government official. It was a rich guy that earned a living by making a product that people actually wanted and that they purchased that was able to do this. Next question I have is from Lee. Lee says, Hi, Jack. Have you tried using uniseals instead of bulkheads for your aquaponics? In episode 1976, you only talked about using bulkheads, but it seemed that Rob Bob is heavily into uniseals. I was wondering if you had any experience using them or could comment on the pros and cons of using them. Thanks, Lee. Uniseals are an alternative to bulkheads, basically. And what they actually do is you're able to push these through a hole in something, and then a pipe goes through them, uh, to allow water to move from one area to the uh, the other without leaking, just like a bulkhead does, and they're you know a single insert basically, and many people use them and are very happy with them, and generally speaking, when you use like your half inch, three quarter inch, one inch, up to two inches, seem to be very very reliable. As you get bigger, you have more and more potential for failure. You also don't have any kind of compression. So a bulkhead has basically three main pieces, usually four. There's usually a washer, too. But you have the bulkhead piece that goes through with a washer on your outside. Then you have a seal, a gasket that slides in, and then you have a compression nut. And when you tighten that compression nut up, it pulls that seal together and holds it. 
This makes it more resilient on things that are highly flexible, especially when you have cold and warm fluctuations in movement from just changing the density of material from warm to cold and cold to warm. Thinner materials, um, I've seen people do it. I probably wouldn't use a, a, a uniseal on an IBC. Um, bulkheads aren't that expensive. The reason people use uniseals in aquaponic systems, larger ones, is bulkheads, you know, I say they're not expensive, but, you know, eight bucks a piece for three quarter inch bulkhead times a hundred? Well, now it's eight hundred dollars in parts. Uniseals might be a dollar, two dollars. Significant savings. Now you're at a hundred to two hundred bucks. For hobby scale, to me, how many bulkheads are you going to use? Ten, twenty, hundred sixty bucks? You know? Big bulkheads cost more money. Like we put two inch bulkheads in uh, one of my systems, they were kind of pricey. But they were worth they were worth having. And I certainly wouldn't have tried to install a uniseal into a rounded galvanized tank, which is where we put those bulkheads. So that, that's another example of what material are you using. So my view about uh, uniseals is use them if you want to. Um, but you know, it might be a good idea to have one or two bulkheads around of the primary size. So if you're using three quarter inch uniseals, have a couple three quarter inch bulkheads on the shelf. And when you get in a situation where it's leaking and you just can't stop it, pop it out, throw it, throw a, uh, a bulkhead in there. Bulkheads are also easier to get out. They're easier to move around. They're easy to reconfigure. If you decide, like, I don't want to use this tank anymore, you can pop the bulkhead out really easy and reuse it. Uh, it's just as reliable as it was the first time you used it. I don't really know if Uniseals, if you can do that. My gut is probably not, or probably not as reliable as you would like them to be. So I just think they're more reliable, and unless you're using a very large quantity, that the cost savings probably aren't worth it. But that's my opinion, and there's nothing wrong with using them. Plenty of people do. This next one's kind of a difficult one. Um, this guy actually reached out to me and, um, I, I was not sure if I should do this or not, but I feel like I, I'm compelled to, I have to, because I know that his sister listens to my show a lot and values what I say. And I think she needs to hear some of what I'm going to say, but she's not going to like it. He says, uh, this is from, uh, he says, my sister is caught up with permaculture and homesteading to the exclusion of what she needs to be doing in life. Pick a few. She's behind on child support, yet takes the vacations to Disney World and permaculture meetups. Has a divorce pending, but she doesn't want to pay for it. She's not providing proper care and housing for her child she does have custody of. She won't get a job because she wants to, quote, do life the permaculture way, end quote. She's buying organic food with food stamps, yet drinks super big gulp sodas habitually. She's extremely obese to the point of near disability. Daily screams at her daughter over trivial things has no specific life goals and no plans to get herself into a place in life where she can have a homestead, is not willing to sit down and write a plan on how to get a homestead, won't prepare a plan or accomplish any of the responsibilities she is shirking. There's so much more, but I'll stop. Can you give folks some advice where to draw the line and how to keep balance when the dream of a homestead is not yet within reach because of other responsibilities? Okay, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to do as much gentility as I can because, honestly, you're screwing your life up, whoever you are. You're screwing your life up. And if you listen to me, you know I tell the truth, and you're about to hear the harsh truth, hopefully from somebody you respect. Um, you're not living life the permaculture way. There's there's three tenets of permaculture, okay? And then there's a prime directive. Let's talk about what they are. Care of the earth? Just give you a pass on that one. Care of people. Care of people. 
Okay, if you're not providing for your child, you're not caring for the people that are closest to you. And living life the way you are, you're not caring for people. And the return of surplus. To, be, to, to have a return of surplus, you can't be a consumer. You have to be a producer. So you're not living life the permaculture way. You have no surplus to return. You're living on other people's money, using food stamps to buy organic food, and then buying big gulps. There's an inconsistency there. Extreme in inconsistency. Um, and you won't take the steps necessary to figure out what's wrong. So where to draw the line, you know, that can be a gray area, but we're so far past where that line needs to be drawn. And this isn't a permaculture problem. This is being an adult problem. This is a having a sense of responsibility problem, and this is a self-image problem. The, the core of this problem is that this person has a, a very negative self-image, and they're projecting onto, like, well, one day I'll have this, and one day I'll have that, and then this will just, everything will work out. It doesn't work out that way. If, if, you're, almost, if you're almost disabled due to your weight, you're going to die before you ever have a homestead. You're going to get diabetes and lose your foot before you ever have a homestead. You have an opportunity in your life right now, whether you see it or not, to say, I am worth something and I'm going to make something out of my life. And, and right now, from what I can see, now I understand this is a single view, but based on the way I was reached out to with this, and I feel like I'm being put more into the Dr. Phil role, role once again than I like to be, but the way that I was reached out to with this, I, I have no doubts that this is a fairly accurate picture of what's going on. Um... How do you ever think you're going to get what you want in life if you won't do the work to get there? I mean, seriously. I, I don't know how you think you're doing things the permaculture way when that's screaming at your kid, not paying child support for some other kid that you apparently don't have custody of, being unwilling to, to, to do what's necessary to finish off this divorce. Um, you're taking trips to Disney World while you're on government assistance. What the hell does Disney World have to do with furthering your goals? And, I, you know, I know people would say, you know, well, you know, everybody needs some entertainment. Everybody needs some fun. Well, fine. But there's a certain amount of responsibility that needs to be met first. And permaculture meetups. I don't know what he means by that, because that might actually be a good thing. And the reason that she might be doing that is because she's going to a place where people talk to her and respect her. And maybe she's not getting enough of that in her life elsewhere. But there's a funny thing about respect. You get what you give. When you respect the people around you, you generally get respect back. And when you respect yourself, you get respect back. When you're in a position where you're so overweight that you're near disabled, I'll tell you what that means, that you soon will be. But that's just more government money, right? That's the permaculture way? Because that's what will happen. You'll end up on more government assistance yet for being disabled. And I, I, I personally feel we should remove obesity from the list of conditions that are considered disabled unless there's like unless it's something a person can't help. There, 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 there's, and I think that's got to be a very, very rare thing. But I'm going to just go out on a limb and accept that maybe somewhere, sometime, someplace, that's the case. But, but, but what this person needs to do right now is not even worry about permaculture. They need to worry about their life. <laughs> They need to get on a good diet, eating the right food, and that doesn't necessarily mean organic if you can't afford it. It means less calories. That's what it means. They start, you start taking a walk every day. 
Start feeling better about yourself. You know, make yourself look good for yourself, not for anybody else, because it'll make you feel better about yourself. Find self-worth and self-value. You need to do the exact things that you're, you're resisting doing. You need to set goals for yourself. You need to hold yourself accountable to those goals. And you get yourself into better physical shape. You don't have to be, you know, friggin' swimsuit model, fit, or whatever. But you shouldn't have a weight issue that impedes you from actually living the life that you say that you want to live. And there's a very simple solution to that. It doesn't have to be, you know, paleo, primal, like, like, like I suggest. All it is is calories. When it comes down to it, if you eat less calories than you burn, you lose weight. Every single time. And every single person that makes excuses about it, if they're put on a program where their diet is controlled, they lose weight just like they're supposed to. And as soon as they are allowed to go back into their own life and make their own decisions, they claim to be restricting their calories, but all of a sudden they gain weight again. You see it all the time. And I don't want to put on, you know, pick on anybody for weight. I've, I've had weight struggles of my own, but I know this. There's, there's a point where it's, it's so excessive that just out of the needs for basic health, you have to do something. And you can't be motivated to get shit done in your life when you're that overweight. It saps your energy. It destroys your self-image. And people say, well, I'm big and beautiful and I love myself this way. No, you don't. That's fake facade bullshit. Okay? And that's what you need to do is you need to drop the bullshit. Everything that you're saying is an excuse and it's bullshit. You need to grab life by the ass and get what you want because you're worth it. You deserve it. You're not entitled to it, but you do deserve it. That's what I say all the time. You deserve what you want. And this is for everybody, not just the person. You deserve what you want. And very few people can actually say, I deserve what I want and mean it. I can say it because I know I'm willing to do the work to get it. And you'll find it very difficult to do the work to get it if you don't believe that you deserve it. And you can't believe that you deserve something until you have a, a genuine like and love for yourself. And that's what this person's lacking. And the reason I was willing to do this is because I know there's, there's a significant portion of any large group of people that fall into this category, at least on some levels. There's different levels. How far down to rock bottom have you gone? And it's not always about weight, just self-loathing. And I know that a lot of people that I've heard from over the years, what they've really been woken up from by this show is that the fact that they didn't like themselves. They didn't like themselves. And they needed to find things to make them like themselves. And it's a funny thing. You start liking yourself, pretty soon you love yourself. And we've been taught that's a taboo thing in America. That's, that's vain. That's vanity. No, vanity's vanity. One cannot really love others if they don't love themselves. They can't. They can't. And that means we have to forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made. We have to rectify the ones we can and accept the ones we can't fix. And we have to have a genuine decency for ourselves, a genuine respect for ourselves. And you can't build a business without that. You can't build a family without that. That's, you know, it just surprised me that you're in a divorce situation like that. How, imagine being married to a person that hates themselves. No matter how much you love them, you can't fix that problem, can you? They have to fix it for themselves. And those relationships always end up in divorce. You, you, you find a relationship where one partner has self-loathing, and it's only a matter of time before the marriage dissolves. Because it can't stay together. Because you, you can't be with somebody like that. It's a complete energy drain. 
You have to fix yourself. By the way, since permaculture is important to this person, I want to point something out. I said there were three tenets. Care of the earth, care of people, return of surplus. Gave you a pass on care of the earth, though drinking big gulps probably doesn't help with that. Just saying. But gave you a pass on it. Care of people, we got a problem. Return of surplus, you have no surplus because you're not a producer. There's something more important than the three ethics. The prime directive. The prime directive of permaculture is abundantly clear. It's the number one thing that made me realize it was a true, important philosophy for life rather than some woo-woo hippie bullshit. And the prime directive very, very simply states, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. And I think people you know, like to hear those words written by Bill Mollison as some kind of a global vision. Like, as a society, we need to take responsibility for our, our, our existence and our children. No, 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 no. This is very clear. Our own existence. Permaculture is about you, the individual. And it's not, you have to do this to be ethical. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility first for yourself and then for your children. And once you do that, you'll find yourself taking responsibility for a lot of other things too. But you cannot, you cannot be practicing permaculture if you're not responsible for yourself. And if you're living in a situation where you're living off other people's money, and, and, and you know, those safety nets are there for a reason. And sometimes they really help people. They really do. And I understand why they exist in some situations. But the problem is when you have no plan to get off of it. Remember this, it's, I've talked about this before, a safety net versus a hammock. Yeah, this is what a safety net is. When this guy swinging by his ass in a trapeze and he falls so that he doesn't break his neck and die, he lands in a net. You can still get hurt. It still hurts. But the, the net's not there so he can lay his ass in it and sleep in it like a hammock. He gets out. If he's not hurt, he goes right back up and swings by his ass again and does his job. Or if he's hurt, he goes and gets patched up, fixed up, and gets his ass back to work, knowing that that safety net's there. Safety net's not a guarantee of total safety. It's a guarantee that you don't have a cataclysmic loss. That's what safety nets are supposed to be. They've evolved into a hammock for people. But you decide if you lay in that hammock or not. And if you're laying in the hammock, you're using food stamps to buy organic food, and then walking down to 7-Eleven and buying a Big Gulp, you're not taking responsibility for your existence. If you're so overweight that you're going to die from health issues, you're not taking responsibility for your own existence. If you're screaming at your kid over trivial matters because your life's effed up, you're not taking responsibility for the existence of your children. If you're not paying for one of your children, then you're not responsible for your child's existence. You're not doing permaculture in your life in the things that you can affect. Permaculture is not about a homestead. Permaculture is not about a farm. Permaculture is not about a tomato or a potato or a fruit tree. Those are just things within the, 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 the scheme of permaculture. Permaculture is about lifestyle design. It's a design science. And if you won't design your life, you can't do permaculture. The first thing you do when you look at a piece of property is say, how do I make this property provide as many of our needs as possible so that I'm not taking from somewhere else. Not just so I have it. 
It's a very misguided view that you seem to have. But I'm not picking on you. I'm telling you the hard truth that you need to hear. You really need, and if you respect me and my work and you follow me all this time, then prove me right. Prove me right, please. Prove me right by saying, you know what, damn it, I'm going to take responsibility for my life. Prove me right. Sit down and set some goals for yourself in the next couple weeks that you can hit and hit those freaking goals. The next time you think you're going to drink a big gulp, don't drink a glass of freaking water. Come up with an eating plan. Take your freaking health back. You're worth it. Take your freaking health back. Treat your freaking kids right. Find a freaking job. Believe that you can, and you can. But don't. Don't you ever claim that you're doing what I teach if you're living this way. Because it's disingenuous, and I don't want it. I want you to know that you're worth something. That what you do matters. But if you're going to have that be the case, that what you do matters, you have to start doing things that matter. You're wasting your dash. You're wasting your freaking dash. Ten years from now, you can be in, in decent health, and you can have a life that you're, you're happy about. Or they can be burying you in one of those oversized caskets. It's up to you. But if you end up there, it's not from practicing permaculture. And it's not from practicing permaculture philosophy, let alone the, the tactics and things that we do on the ground. That's all I can say on that. Let's take another one. Quick little side note one here. I mean, I just, unbelievable to me. Jack, I just purchased and installed my mailbox. Wife orders a phone cord charger from Amazon. Amazon places it in my mailbox. United States Post Office steals the package and then charges to get the cord back for, quote, improper use of a mailbox. Go government. Rob from Michigan. I'm not sure that's legal. I mean, in the end, that mailbox is not the government's property, in my view. It's my property. It might be federally protected, but it's my property. I bought it. I paid for it. I installed it. But I guess you can get away with things that are illegal when you're the government because you just say they're legal, and because you're government, they all of a sudden become legal. So what I, I think most likely actually happened here is the mail carrier didn't look in there and go, oh, that doesn't belong there. I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to hold it hostage for money for my retirement account. I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is you have a postman. He's going around, and we all know you put your mail in the mailbox. And if you, if you want to send mail from your mailbox, you put your little flag up, right? A flag's not up, or flag is up. I don't know. Guy comes by, something's in there. He just grabs it, throws it in his collection box, puts the new stuff in because he thinks it's, it's, it's something that they're mailing out. Doesn't look at it, gets sloppy, doesn't do his job well. This probably happens from time to time, so the Postal Service probably came up with a policy of if it's not U.S. mail, it doesn't belong in your mailbox. But that's a reason that you might want to talk to your other you know, uh, parcel carriers about not putting stuff in your mailbox. Though it's a perfectly rational thing to do. It really is. But I actually think it is illegal for someone not you to put something in your mailbox unless they are a post uh, postman. This also stems from a time when like, that's the only way stuff got shipped was the post office. You know, We've had other carriers for a little while now. Um, I also think it might be dependent upon how your post box is marked. Is it marked U.S. mail? You know, most of the time when you buy a post office, a, a, a mailbox, it says U.S. mail on it. Not just, you know, package receptacle or something like that. So maybe building your own is a solution for that. I don't know. Anybody that's got some insight on this, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, first time I've ever heard of it. 
Uh, it sounds like a really shitty thing for the uh, post office to do. By the way, if you're going to join MSB and pay in silver, this is what I need you to do. Make sure you don't put that shit in an envelope. We just had another person's silver stolen today out of the mail. Two ounces. Put in a regular envelope. Don't do it. There are thieves in the post office system. Thieves. It needs to be wrapped in cardboard or something like that and, and well protected so you can't tell what's inside of it. And Because uh, it happens from time to time. And we always end up just eating the loss and uh, giving the person their, their membership without, without you know, recharging them for it. But I think we're actually going to change that policy because I've, I've done that for years and I've, I've tried to explain, you know, it says right on the form that you have to make sure it's properly packaged. And putting a silver coin in a paper envelope is not properly packaged. It will get stolen almost every time. Um, we've seen many instances where you could tell they tried to get to it but couldn't because it was packaged a little bit better, wrapped in some paper or something like that. But as long as they can tell, there's people in the system. They just, when they touch mail, they know what it is. They know what it is and they steal. The post office is not, you know, an organization you can trust, you know, 100%. It just isn't. Please know that. So this next one comes from Ryan and Ryan says, Jack, you called it again. The Congress clowns are eyeballing tax revenue from 401k accounts. From the article, the next round of tax reform, it, quote, it's not really a question of whether retirement plans will get a haircut, but by how much, says Bradford Campbell, a partner of law firm Drinkle, Drinker, Bibble, Biddle, and Reith in Washington, D.C., who served as an assistant secretary of labor under President George W. Bush. And he actually sent me the article in a PDF because it's on Wall Street Journal and it's, uh, it's behind a paywall. So I decided to look up another source on this and, uh, I find immediately some yellow journalism, so I'm going to use this as the article I linked to. It's on The Motley Fool, who is very, very anti-Republican. They, they, they really are. They're very much mainstream, kind of progressive-minded people that at least understand money when it comes to individual investing, sort of. But what's the headline? The headline is that Congress might take away a tax break in your 401k. It's, is Donald Trump about to take away your 401k's biggest tax break? Like, just hit Donald Trump here. I'm not even going to read the article. You can if you want to. But let me tell you what they're actually talking about doing. They're talking about doing away with conventional 401k's and making them all basically Roth 401k's. Well, you know how I feel about that, right? So, you should be doing a Roth anyway. The, the the basic difference here is, so right now you put money in your 401k, and it goes out pre-tax. When you retire, they tax it as you withdraw it. And there's financial liars who say, but you'll be in a lower tax bracket when you retire. Bullshit. Right? We've proven that to be a myth so many times, especially when one spouse survives the other, etc. Uh, sometimes their tax bracket goes up. But you have no idea what your tax bracket's going to be in 30 years. You have no idea what tax brackets are going to be in 30 years. So with a Roth, we put the money in and we've already paid our taxes on it. When we withdraw it, we never pay any tax on it ever again. This isn't actually what I predicted. I don't like it. It's still sleazy, but it wouldn't affect anybody's existing money. You know, what it would do is if you have, you've been doing it this way for this long, basically it would bifurcate and you'd have a new New, new bucket holding your money, and under that new bucket, that money would come out um, post-tax, and when you withdraw it, you pay no taxes on it, which is what I would advise you to do anyway. I've always said, if you have a 401k, 
at your office, you know, your job, and it gives you the option to do Roth or conventional. Always do Roth, always do Roth, always do Roth, always do Roth, always do Roth. Unless you're like, if you're like five years from retirement and you're opening up a new 401k, well, then conventional probably will work out for the better because, you know, you're taxed on the gains, basically, is the way that it works out with a conventional. Uh, you're going to pay taxes on the gains and the money contributed, okay? With a with a Roth style, you're only going to pay taxes on the contributions, and you don't pay any taxes on the gains. So, again, this is a, probably a better way to think about it than I've ever explained it before. In a conventional IRA, you pay taxes on all the money, all the money, eventually, okay? In a Roth, you pay taxes on the contributions at the time of contribution, but you pay no taxes on the gains. Now, if you're investing for 20, 30 years of your life or more, the gains should exceed the contributions. And you're going to pay taxes on the contributions eventually anyway. So my greater fear is that they're going to go and actually tax the accounts themselves in some way or do away with them altogether. And, and the class warfare crap is coming out that these the, the Democrats have wanted to do this forever. I'm sure they'll think it's a terrible idea now, right? Because they're in the minority and they can play that game. But what they've always said is it benefits the rich. 401ks and IRAs benefit the rich. Never mind that there's limits and when you make a certain amount of money, you can't have them anymore. Just ignore that, right? It's such bullshit. But uh, here's what the government's thinking. The little grubby hands, right? Here's what we can do. We can do this. Like little, they're like, like little rats is how I think of politicians, you know? With their little mealy mouth with their like, their little fingers up around their mouth, like, right? We can do this. This will be great. See, what's happening right now is the boomers are starting to retire. And all of the boomers that are retiring are taking all that pension money, all that 401k money, and they're, they're withdrawing it now. They're paying taxes on it. And that's going to go on for another 20 to 30 years. All of that money's already in there. In fact, that's going to go on for a lot longer because we've run these programs this way up till now. So you're talking 40 or 50 years that they're going to continue to have some piece of the retirement to tax at withdrawal. Well, now they want a new generation that they can tax before they contribute because that's 40 years away. Well, all those clowns are done with their job by then. They're retired on their excellent retirement. Their retirement's great. And by the way, we pay for it. You know, if they contributed their own money, we'd still be paying for it because we pay their salary in the first place. But no, we pay their salary plus we pay into their retirement. Yeah. So they don't give a damn that eventually that, 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 that sugar cart will run out. That all of that boomer money and all of that Gen X money that's been deferred will stop being taxed and you'll only be taxing the new contributions because they won't be in office anymore. So that's what they're thinking is they can get they can get they can grab money from both ends. What they're trying to do is cut taxes and yet make it revenue neutral. That's that's the goal. Instead of like, why don't you just cut taxes and then cut government? No, they never. I, yeah, all of you that thought Trump was going to cut government, you're you're slowly learning it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It'll cut little things here and there, but the overall size of government will continue to grow. The national debt's going to continue to grow. The whole thing's a joke. It's what you're going to get from a state. That's why sometimes you think, like, why aren't you more politically active, Jack? Because I know better. I play that game. I, I understand now that the game is rigged. The house always wins, and you always lose. And the only solution is not to play that game anymore. 
they're not done with this yet. They're going to come at this from many different angles until they figure out which one they can sell to the American people. This probably won't get done as part of comprehensive tax reform right now. Um, what may happen is much more of an incentive to get people to go the Roth way, which I would actually agree with, but not the reasons behind it. So what I mean by that is they may incentivize employers to withdraw the conventional option. That's a, that's a much but we didn't take anything away. We're just incentivizing Roth style savings because it's better for you. They would actually be telling you the truth. It's the same thing they did. Like, do you, do you notice how they took away all the cash value funds in 401ks? They just disappeared. I told you about that years ago. There's one or two of them left out there, but I had I had like when I had people send me what their options were, I had like 80 different people out of this audience reply, and out of 80, like five had a cash value option. Everybody else had bond funds for their most conservative, safe investment, which you can still lose money on. They just took it away inside the plan. There's all kinds of ways you can do this thing. This is just they're just waiting to see you know what what would how people will react to it, and it gives people like Motley Fool the ability to you know attack Donald Trump. This isn't Trump's plan. This is Congress's plan. Now, would Trump sign it? I don't know. It probably depends on everything else that goes along with it. That, that's, that's probably the case. Trump's a deal maker. Anyway, they're after your 401ks, guys. This is, uh, this is minor by comparison to what's eventually going to happen, though. Keep your eyes open on this, guys. They're, they're, they're coming for your money. That's just, there's just too many billions of dollars there for them not to eyeball it. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up the show for today. I want to remind you that you can help support our show by doing your shopping on Amazon at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go to uh, tspaz.com, you can see all the items that we've reviewed, and you can also see a link to see the Amazon deals of the day. You click that link to see the deals of the day, you get on over to Amazon, you take a look at what's there on the deals of the day. If you don't want any of that stuff, you look up whatever you were going to buy anyway, and then we've referred you to Amazon, so we're the affiliate All my Amazon links are affiliate links on the site. And uh, no matter what you buy, we get credit for if you go through one of our links. So it's a great, easy way to support us. Usually I have an item of the review up, item of the day up for review. I don't have one today, but, you know, you can always go to tspaz.com and you click a link there to see all of the reviews. You can start scrolling through them and see all of the stuff that I've reviewed. I want to point something out today really quick about the difference between my reviews on Amazon and almost any other site out there doing Amazon reviews. There is nothing that I've ever reviewed on Amazon that I haven't at least put my hands on and used. 95% or more, I own. It's in my home. Okay, A few things, I don't really need them, but I knew somebody that had them, and I actually tried it, and it actually worked, and I've gotten good responses from people that, that also own it. But 95% I own, I've purchased with my own money. And I think that's why most of you that have done business with us through TSPAS and have, have purchased items that we've reviewed on Amazon have been happy with your purchase. You've gotten what we've promised because we, we do that. Uh, it's an integrity thing that's important to me that I stand on, and I, I just wanted to point that out today. And again, it is a painless, cost-free way to support us because if you're just going to go out and buy something today on Amazon, taking the step to go to TSPAS first helps us. And it doesn't cost you anything. It really doesn't cost you any more time. Again, there's no Jack Spirico fee when you buy through tspaz.com. Also, another way, as I mentioned earlier, you can support us is on Patreon. A lot of you guys have told me from overseas that you really don't dig the MSB because of all the discounts and everything like that. You know, don't really help you because most of the companies are U.S.-based. Uh, I have some pretty cool things on Patreon. You can support me at $1, $3, or $5 a month. 
the $1 a month, a lot of you guys that just listen to the show and think, you know what, I'd like to support them, but, you know, 50 bucks a year for MSV, even though it's on sale for 30 right now, um, you know, a dollar, a dollar a month or something like that, it, it's, uh, it's an easy thing to do. And remember, we're working Patreon so that we can, uh, learn everything about it so we can bring more content out on YouTube that helps other producers learn how to leverage it and use it for themselves as well. With that, we get to the song of the day. This is a, this is a great song as far as I'm concerned. I've actually played this song before. It's by the Highwaymen, which was the country music supergroup. And if there ever was a country music supergroup, it was the Highwaymen. Uh, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and Willie Nelson. I mean, just an amazing, uh, amazing group. This song is called American Remains. Um, and it really kind of tells the story of who we are and where we came from as a people. I, I think this song is interesting in a variety of ways because... You know, Johnny Cash's line is about being a shotgun rider for the Santa, uh, Santa Jacinto line, which basically he was the guy that rode shotgun uh, on stagecoaches. And the bandit fired once and shot him in his chest. They may have wounded me, but they'll never get the best of better men because I'll ride again. And then Wellen Jennings is a river gambler. Made a living dealing cars and got thrown off a ship, but he could swim and he's going to ride again. And Willie Nelson says he's a farmer living off the land and driving a John Deere tractor. He's a liberated man. The rain hasn't fallen for some time. The banker wants to take his place. The banker tells me that he's coming, but the clouds are coming too. He ain't my friend, and I'll ride again. So we have a farmer, a gambler, and basically a cowboy. Not really a cowboy, but, you know, an Old West kind of guy. And then Chris Christopherson's part says he's a Native American. His tribe is Cherokee. His father's loved this land. He talks about the white men coming and, and taking the land and destroying things. But he says they'll never win and I'll ride again. Now, if you think about it, the the farmer that settled this land, the 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 it's the, certainly the stagecoach uh, shotgun rider, and to some degree, I guess you'd say the gambler that's on the riverboat up and down the Mississippi are the very people that took the land. But what's the chorus say? We are heroes of the homeland, American remains. We live in many faces and answer many names. We will not be forgotten. We won't be left behind. Our memories live on in mortal minds and, ha and poet pens will write again. This song is about us. It's about all of us and the cloth that we're actually cut from. It's pretty good stuff. Did all of these men flawed and brave alike, are what built what we have, which is pretty amazing. Despite the things we've done to screw things up in this world, America is a pretty good place to live compared to much of the rest of the world. And if we want it to be what it can be, we need to take the, the remains of those men that, that went before us. We need to act like what we're supposed to be. Americans. True Americans. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I am a shotgun rider for the San Jacinto line. The desert is my brother. My skin is cracked and dry. I was riding on a full coast and everything was fine till we took a shorter road to save some time. Bandits only fired once, they shot me in the chest 
They may have wounded me, but they'll never get the best of better men. Cause I'll ride again. I am a river gambler. I make a living dealing cards. My clothes are smooth and honest. My heart is cold and hard. I'm a shuffling force of Delta boys on a boat for New Orleans. I was the greatest shark they'd ever seen. But the captain bumped a sandbar and an ace fell from my sleeve. They threw me overboard as I swore I didn't cheat. But I could swing. And I'll ride again. We are heroes of the homeland of America. Farmer, I make a living off the land. I ride a John Deere tractor. I'm a liberated man. The rain it hasn't fallen since the middle of July. And if it don't come soon, my crops will die. The bankman says he likes me, but there's nothing he can do. He tells me that he's coming, but the clouds are coming too. He ain't my friend. And I'll ride again I am an American Indian My tribe is Cherokee My forefathers loved this land They left it here for me The white man came with boats and trains And early factories Poisoned my existence with his teeth Nature is our mother We are sucklings at her breast who tries to beat her down will lose her to the rest. They'll never win. I'll ride again. <laughs> 